We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Read Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But all this I lay to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so the sinner is. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil that uh, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. The same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more uh, they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Verse seven, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking from your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong nor bread to the wise nor riches to the intelligent nor favor to those who, with knowledge but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Alrighty, let's pray. Oh God, in your light do we see light. Even the darkness is as light to you. We need you to send forth your light this morning. For we live in a dark world with dark realities and darkness in our own hearts. Spirit, would you fill us this morning? Would you use this word to comfort the downcast and encourage those who are struggling? God. May you use it to draw people who have never been drawn before to you. Lord, thank you for this word. God, we pray for the hedgers. We ask for their physical healing in this time. Lord, um, may they experience this time as a paradoxical uh, season of rest. Um, Lord, be with me. Um, Preach a better sermon than I have prepared. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So when asked the question, 
How do you find Christ in the Old Testament? That great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, replied, Do you not know that from every little town and village and tiny hamlet in England there is a road leading to London? Whenever I get hold of a text, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Jesus Christ. And I mean to keep on his track till I get to him. After this, someone asked, well, suppose you're preaching a text from the Old Testament that says nothing about Christ. To which Spurgeon responded, then I will go over hedge and ditch, but I will get to him. Friends, that is my promise to you. Unless the Lord returns before I'm done preaching, my promise is that we're going to find Christ in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We may have to climb over hedge and ditch, but we will find him. Or rather, he will find us. So before I jump into the text, I want to set a bit of context. A couple of weeks ago, we spent some time in Ecclesiastes 7. And there, Solomon told us that it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Do you remember why? Because, Solomon wrote, death is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, if you want to find wisdom, think on death. And Pastor Josh showed us the paradox that if we're constantly in the house of feasting and we never spend time in the house of mourning, then we'll actually end up missing out on the kind of godly wisdom we need to enjoy life. And in our text today, Solomon's going to take us back to the house of mourning. He's going to push us to think about the very thing we try to avoid thinking about, death. He's going to urge the living, us, to lay death to heart, to think hard on it. If we're honest, that's not something we typically like to do. Most of us don't spend a lot of time pondering death. I mean, if you're at a party, the last thing you want to say is, hey guys, just remember, when all this is over, we're going to die. Now, in fact, we often go great lengths to avoid the thought of death. Like COVID, we like to keep it at least six feet away at all times, if not more. To make matters worse, we live in a culture that has increasingly pushed the dead and dying to the outskirts. In his book, The End of the Christian Life, J. Todd Billings writes this about death in American culture. In the 1940s, most Americans died in their homes. By the 1980s, just 17% died in their homes. For many in earlier times, caring for the dying was part of the job description of being a child. And it took place in the home. Today, by contrast, we've sequestered the dying into sanitized hospitals and nursing homes. And we've done our best to shield our children from the harsh realities of death. And it's all part of a state of mind in which we think, if I can rid myself of the odor of death, Maybe I can live as if death is not intertwined with my everyday life. It's a hard word, but I think Billings is right. Many of us have done our best to ignore death. We may occasionally give time or pres uh, kind of recognize its presence in our lives, 
But for the most part, we act as if it didn't exist. We plan our lives as if the next year, the next month, the next day, hour, and even second is a guaranteed fact. And yet we know this is an illusion. It's a great trick of the devil. It only takes one phone call to shatter the daydream. I do want to acknowledge the fact that for some of you in the room, death is not far from mind. In fact, you might even dread a sermon like this because you don't want to be reminded of the loss of a friend, a mother, a father, a child. And you might feel as if you're already in the house of mourning and ready to leave. And death has reared its ugly head and you're done. And if that's you this morning, then my, hear my prayer. May the God of comfort comfort you in your affliction. May the words of Ecclesiastes in this sermon feel like medicine on your wounds. And may even the harsh words of this text surprise you with the amount of hope that they can bring. And really, that's my prayer for all of us because one thing is clear. We're all sinners and we're all sufferers. We all face the great enemies called sin and death. So let's face them together and forge a path to Christ. Verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Now, I simply want to note two things in passing about this first verse. First, for Solomon, there's a kind of safety in the hand of God that only the righteous can obtain. Second, the love and the hate that Solomon mentions here most likely refers to God's disposition toward humanity. So when he says man does not know or understand, he's saying that it's impossible to know God's disposition towards you simply by looking at the circumstances of your life. In fact, if we did that, we'd all have to reckon with the fact that we all die. And it'd be a logical conclusion to think, well, God really must hate us all. And we know from Scripture that that's not the case. So before jumping headlong into death, Solomon reminds us, it's impossible to determine God's disposition towards you by looking merely at the circumstances of life. And that's actually hopeful. He continues, it is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean to him who sacrifices, and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is he as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, and that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. So clearly, we're in the house of mourning. And we're contemplating death. First things first. Death is unavoidable. No one is exempt. So, as Solomon puts it, you can live a righteous life, death will still come. You can live a wicked life, 
death will still come. You can live a pure life, and death will still come. And you can even boast in your impurity, and death will still come. The same event happens to all. Death is no respecter of persons. And in verse 3, Solomon says that this is an evil. And all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. You see, death is not just a mere unavoidability. It is an evil. An outside intruder in God's good world. Lest we forget, Solomon reminds us that we were not innocent bystanders in this. No, we're actually the ones who welcomed death into the world. Don't miss the end of verse 3, where he says, Also, the, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. It's not a mere coincidence that Solomon places the evil of death right next to the evil in our hearts. So as hard as it is to confront the reality of death, we, like Cain, must recognize that we've got blood in our own hands. After all, God is not the source of sin and destruction and death. We are. And for that reason, we are the ones who must face God's judgment. Verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For all the living, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. What a weird statement. A, a living dog is better than a dead lion? What's he mean? Well, he means simply this, that to be alive is better than to be dead. Death is to be preferred than life. After all, you can bear all the resemblances of a strong, powerful lion, but if your heart has stopped beating, those resemblances... Those appearances mean nothing. He says it well in verse 6. The love and hate and envy of the dead has already perished, and they no longer have a share in life under the sun. On the other hand, you can bear the resemblance of an unclean, powerless dog. And yet, if you're alive, you have great advantage over the lion. Why? Because he who is joined to the living has hope. Now, it is interesting, isn't it, that Solomon, he doesn't necessarily tell us what the substance of that hope is. He just states that it is. It's almost as if the words of Solomon are searching for fulfillment in something or someone greater than themselves. It's as if Solomon can see the fact of hope, but he can't quite make clear the details. And that's important to remember as we forge a path to Christ. There's a hope here. It's there. But the substance of that hope remains a mystery. Now in the next three verses, Solomon actually gives us a break from the house of mourning. And he allows us to take a brief walk through the house of feasting. 
Remember, both are necessary on the path to wisdom. So what does Solomon have to teach us about the house? What does he have to teach us in the house of feasting? Look at verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So despite the fact that death is unavoidable and despite the realities of sin, Solomon calls us to eat bread with joy. Now, this has been the case all throughout the book, hasn't it? It's like Solomon places the harshest reality that he can think of right before us, and then almost in defiance, he commands us to live a life of gratitude in the face of God's providence. Remember, Solomon's already told us that there's a time for everything under the sun. And when he says everything, he means everything. After all, there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up. The list goes on and on. One thing is clear. We do not live in an arbitrary or meaningless cosmos. Now, according to Solomon, we live in a world where there is a God above the sun, And everything under the sun, including sin and death, is to be viewed in relation to him. So with this in mind, Solomon calls us to eat our bread with joy and drink our wine with merry hearts, to put on the oil of gladness and enjoy things like marriage. In other words, he calls us to see the world as a gift. The Apostle Paul says essentially the same exact thing in 1 Timothy 4. Everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Perhaps that's what you need to hear this morning. Perhaps you need to be reminded that despite appearances, we live in a God-governed world. And what he has called good, you can really receive as good. Now, if you're anything like me, you've probably had these moments where you're enjoying something, like you're really enjoying something good from God. Something like laughter or food or time with friends and family. And all of a sudden, this thought comes in. Should I really be enjoying this? I mean... There are people suffering in the world. There are people suffering right down the street. And here I am, enjoying life, making light of life. And with the snap of a finger, a shadow of guilt covers the whole scene. Now Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, actually has a word to offer us in these moments. You see, Luther often experienced the same kind of guilt-inducing thoughts. And do you want to know who he attributed those thoughts to? The devil. 
Listen to what he once wrote in a letter to a friend. Sometimes it is necessary to drink a little more, to play, to jest, and even commit some kind of infraction and defiance. If the devil should say to you, do not drink, you should reply to him, on this very account, because you forbid it, I will drink. And what is more, I shall drink a generous amount. Thus, one must always do the opposite of that which Satan prohibits. Now, you just have to laugh at Luther's brilliance. He's not promoting sin. It's clear. He's not promoting self-indulgence. He's not promoting alcoholism. No, Luther's, he's simply following in the footsteps of Solomon by saying, that which God has called good, let no one, including the devil himself, tell you otherwise. In sum, receive the gifts of God with joy. Now Solomon knows that you can only stay in the house of feasting for so long. If you stay too long, you run the danger of growing numb to the deep realities of life. Hard realities like sin and evil and death. And so in these last few verses, Solomon actually takes us back to the house of mourning. Remember, he said, it's better. Starting in verse 11, he writes, Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Now for a moment, I just want you, you can even close your eyes and just feel the weight of what Solomon is saying. Life is complex. It's not simple. It's not straightforward. You'd think the race would be to the swift, but it's not. You'd think the battle will be to the strong, but it's not. You'd think the bread would be to the wise, the riches to the intelligent, the favor to those with knowledge, but that's often not the case. One biblical scholar writes this, Solomon's words force us to ask whether life has meaning or whether a person can live life so as to gain some benefit, perhaps even one that death cannot erase. His wrestlings raise questions about God's goodness and justice, questions that remain somewhat unanswered in the book. His queries about life's meaning and about the way God works in the world make clear that the evidence available to us from experience is often too ambiguous to provide full answers. Listen to this. Resolve to such tensions can only be enjoyed by faith. That is, in the fear of God. No other means can provide a solution. At the end of the day, life under the sun really can seem, we have to admit this, it can seem like nothing but a game of time 
and chance. Anything can happen. And in the midst of our struggle to comprehend this complexity, Solomon points out the obvious but difficult-to-remember fact that our lives can end at any moment. In the blink of an eye, like a fish that is taken in an evil net, like birds caught in a snare. Again, Solomon tells us, death is unavoidable. It's unpredictable. It's evil. Now, I know that some of you in this very moment have specific names and voices and faces in your minds when you hear a sermon like this. Others of you might simply be reckoning with the fact of your own mortality for the first time in a while. And let me tell you something. If you're feeling like this text is just a little too negative, a little too heavy to bear, then you're feeling the text rightly. In this text, Solomon pushes us to the edge of darkness. He takes us by the hand, sits us down, and forces us to reckon with realities like sin and the cold, hard reality of its consequence, death. Yes, he has given permission for us to enjoy some time in the house of feasting, to enjoy the good gifts of God. But we have to be honest, the overarching theme of this text is death. There's no way around it. In fact, we're supposed to feel the weight of the wages our sin has earned. We're supposed to feel the heaviness of God's judgment against sin. At the end of the day, Solomon wants us to reckon with the simple fact that in Adam all die. Unless. And this is a massive unless. Unless the God above the sun, in fact, the God who made the sun, no, God the Son Himself comes down. And friends, let me tell you something this morning. God the Son has come down. In fact, we're about to experience that in the season of Advent at Emmaus, that time where we ponder what it meant to wait in longing for this moment to happen. And it has happened. In Jesus Christ, God has shone forth His light in a dead and dying world and said, whoever believes in Him will not die, but will have everlasting life. Listen to the words of Hebrews 2. We're told, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's you and me, He Himself, Christ, likewise partook of the same things, all the hebel in the book of Ecclesiastes, all the mist and the vapor that marks our life in this world, Christ himself, the eternal son of God, partook of. He partook of the same things like flesh and blood. He was one of us. Why? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us why. That through death, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject 
to lifelong slavery. This is the good news that Ecclesiastes 9 prepares the way for. It's the news that God, in the death of His Son, defeated death itself. And how did He do that? He did it by bearing the very thing that brought death into the world. Our sin. As 1 Peter says, Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree so that having died to sin, we might live for righteousness. So have you trusted in Christ? Have you confessed with your mouth that He is Lord and you are not? Have you believed in your heart that God raised Him from the dead? Then you, my brother or sister, are not only free from the slavery of sin, but free from the slavery of sin's consequence, death. Which means that you can rightfully sing with Paul right now in the midst of death. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Gone. Gone. And there's only one way to respond to news like that. Thanks be to God, who through Jesus Christ always gives us victory. Now maybe you're here and you feel like a foreigner to this good news. Maybe you've been in, slave, you've been in slavery to the fear of death your entire life. And this is the first time that someone's told you there's a way out. Maybe you've heard it a thousand times. It doesn't matter. You've got two paths before you, always, in every moment. One, you can despair, give up, turn your face, and act as if you're unaware of the predicament you're in. Act as if your sin didn't exist, and God's righteous wrath against it didn't exist, and hell didn't exist. Or, you can take refuge in the only one who's able to save. The only one who's able to take all the hebel of your life, all the mist and the vapor and redeem it. The only one who's ever looked death square in the face and come out laughing on the other side. The risen and reigning Lord, Jesus Christ. There is no other way. He himself is the way. So if you're feeling the, the weight of your sin, feeling the weight of God's judgment against it in death, and also, if you're feeling the pull of God's affection for you in Christ Jesus, feel free to come to me or one of the pastors, I'm not a pastor, but one of the pastors of Emmaus after we're done. We would love to meet you to pray with you, to answer any questions you have. I think at least one of the pastors will be standing over here to the right when we're done. Now for the believers in the room, my brothers and sisters, my charge comes to you this morning in the form of a Bible quiz. I was a little nervous to do this. But I've got two questions for you. Question number one. According to the New Testament, where are those who've trusted in Christ 
now located in Christ. And in Christ, you have been declared righteous. Question number two. According to the New Testament, where is Christ now seated? You can answer. At the right hand of God. Now I told you we'd come back to the first verse of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. So I want to end our time together by simply reading it one last time. Hear the word of the Lord. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Christian, as you go about your week this week, remember where you are. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Lord, it is living and active. Pierces the division between bone and marrow, between soul and spirit. It reveals the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Lord, it it reveals the intentions of our heart in trying to escape death by merely avoiding the thought of it. God, you have provided such a great gift, not only in the good things of this world, but in the gift of your Son, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God, I pray for those this morning who who are feeling the weight of sin, feeling the pull of your affection. May they simply come to you and find rest. Lord, we thank you for this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.